This is Applying the Bible, part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Fellowship. This season digs into the truth of Genesis 1 through 12, a series we're calling God of the Ages. We are looking at Genesis latter half of chapter 9 through the Tower of Babel experience of chapter 11 in terms of the common root of diversity. How all of the diversity that we see in the world has a common root in itself, both in the family of Noah, but also a common root in a need for salvation, a need for deliverance. Uh, our, my family history uh, as the Bowman family uh, the, between Kelly and I, you know, it has different um, ages in it, if you will. I lived in Knoxville, Tennessee until I was 18 years old, and then I moved uh, 10 hours away up to Chicago to attend Moody Bible Institute in downtown Chicago, and never other than summers have lived back in Tennessee again since then. And and met Kelly, uh, and uh, and um, was interested in her from the very moment that I met her when she was visiting her sister there on campus. Her sister being a student there at Moody as well. But but I would have to fill Kelly in on my life prior to that, right? But from that point forward, began a new age of my life and her life together. Uh, after. Uh, we both graduated from college. We moved to Columbia, South Carolina, where I attended seminary there, and that began a new age. And, and Hannah was born two weeks before I started my first classes. We decided to take a year off between undergraduate and my seminary work, and we spent a year being pregnant. And um, so Hannah was born right before we, I started seminary. And just before we left South Carolina, Micaiah was born. Uh, but yet even then, uh, you'd have to explain to Micaiah what life was like for us with just one child living there in South Carolina. And so we moved to the Chicago area where I uh, served as a youth pastor there and, and from there went to central Wisconsin where I served as a youth pastor. And there we adopted Zachary from Liberia. And, and our life before Zachary, we'd have to explain to him. We'd have to, to you know... Um, you know, what it would have been like for us, an all-white family, you know, before we had, uh, you know, some, some more color in the family for us. And then when we moved to Rapid City, we uh, started the process of adopting Zachary's brother, Emmett, uh, finding out just before we left Wisconsin that he was also available for adoption in Liberia. And Emmett didn't know my life in Tennessee, my life in South Carolina, Illinois, Wisconsin. All he knew of life in America was, you know, uh, Mount Rushmore is just a little bit of ways and, you know, there's no humidity and, and um, you know, Rapid City, South Dakota. And, and then we all moved together here to Indiana. And so, so our life as a family took on different ages of time, different experiences, and, and each person as they jumped on board, and, and the same with your family as well, you'd have to explain to them what it was like before then. 
And, and that's what we see in the book of Genesis. Genesis meaning beginnings. is different epochs of time that would begin with an event that was, was uh, earth-shaking, if you will. See, the history of mankind is similar. And the guiding principles that we see as we walk through these 12 chapters of the book of Genesis, and as we look at this, it's that God is the God of the ages. He's the God of all of these epics. He's even the God that was there before anything else was by himself informing us of the past and how it affects us. That's what the book of Genesis does for us. Genesis is the book of beginnings, as I mentioned. Each new epic opening with a major event. And last week, we looked at the covenant that God made with Noah and his family after the epic event that began the epic of post-flood, the post-flood world, this world that we understand as being now we have an identity uh, and an understanding of what it means to be saved from horrific judgment. That epic began with the flood of the world. And the covenant that God made with Noah just after the flood opens an epic of common grace where God, knowing that man's heart was always going to lead him away from God, had to decide in himself that he was not going to flood the earth ever again, that all of mankind would experience that common grace of, of this judgment being withheld. And since then, mankind has a common sense of needing salvation from judgment, And presently, we we experience grace from judgment by water, but in the future, there will be judgment by fire, as we are told about in 1 Peter and in the book of Revelation. And we'll enter into an eternal state in which every person will either spend that eternity in heaven or in hell. This, This new epic, though, that we look to here in Genesis... That really is begun in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. It's an, an epic of diversity. Diversity of language. Diversity of culture. All the world's diversity holds a common genetic root in the person of Noah. And it also holds the common root of the need for redemption. And the event, as I mentioned, which begins this next epic is the Tower of Babel in which all humanity is divided by language. But first, the stage of the Tower of Babel is set among Noah and his sons. Okay, so so you're familiar with movies where where you have a storyline going like like, um, the Star Wars movies, right? Um, but then, uh, uh, or, uh, thinking of like maybe even Lord of the Rings. Okay. And you, you understand the Lord of the Rings trilogy or the Star Wars movies, but then they come up with a prequel, right? They come up with an explanation of, of that movie in addition to that series. But in, as far as the chronology of that series, this movie comes before it. 
And you kind of get this sense throughout the movie, oh, that's where that guy comes from. Oh, that's how they meet. Oh, that's why that relationship is the way that it is. And so understand that this latter half of of Genesis 9 is like a prequel to the Tower of Babel. It's like a pre-explanation for the readers that understood very much and, and lived out the effects of the Tower of Babel that as they read Genesis 9, they get a better understanding of what led up to and, and what, what affected the diversities that eventually came out of the Tower of Babel. I hope you understand that from what we're uh, looking at it this morning. First, the stage is set, as I mentioned, by this situation with Noah and his sons. And we pick up back in, in Genesis 9, verse 18, Noah and his descendants quickly show that they are fallen, frail, and forecasted to be scattered by God because of disobedience. Understand that when I'm preparing a sermon, one of the things that I ask myself and that, that I need to discern is asking myself the question, what, what was the impact of these words on the original readers? Okay, how did these words strike the original readers? So the original readers of these words would have been the Hebrew people, the people that Moses is leading through the wilderness, Okay, and so they are reading this and they are coming to understand, as I said, the world in which they see around them. And, the, and so in preparing a sermon, the next the question that I want to ask in, in this part of that process is, how, Lord, do you want to have a similar impact on today's hearers? Okay, but that's, that's kind of a side. But, but so it, there's a challenge here when reading these verses to understand them as not understand them with the concept of the reader already knew that the Tower of Babel was about to happen. Okay, does that make sense? Chapters 9 through 10 are written from the perspective after the Tower of Babel. Prior to the Tower of Babel, there's different kinships, but one language one culture, if you will, based on those languages. And the chapters are written from the perspective of the relationships that people groups had with the Hebrews and with the God of the Hebrews, okay? So in other words, also, there's a timeline of, okay, they're reading this after the Tower of Babel has happened, but they're also reading this in terms of the, the relationships that people groups had with the Hebrew nation. While this age of diverse cultures is officially kicked off with the Tower of Babel, it is rooted in a family experience after the flood. And so we read in verse 18, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Okay, so the reader all of a sudden is like, okay, yeah, Canaan, Canaanites. These guys we had trouble with or we have, will have trouble with. We've always had trouble with. Ham's the father of Canaan. These were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. When were they dispersed? At the Tower of Babel. 
but they're reminded all of the people of the earth came from these three sons. And this brings us to an event that distinguished the three brothers by their behavior. And so we read in verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laying it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. Noah here, we see reflections of his, his sinful heart still, affected by the fall of man. Interestingly here, Noah becomes like a second Adam, if you will. Okay? He becomes the man that will, is the, the ancestor of all of mankind. But yet like his father, Adam, he's the father of all mankind, but he's also, it's also, we see that his first recorded incident is also a, 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 um, a misuse of the fruit of the land, right? We see that with Adam. He takes of something that's forbidden from him for, from the fruits. That's the first recorded thing that we see of him doing after he and Eve are united as husband and wife. And we see the same thing with Noah. We see that there's a problem of nakedness. We saw that with Adam, that he could not solve himself. We see this with Noah, unable to solve the problem on his own. And we see the resulting in a curse on some of his offspring. The line of his grandson specifically. So Noah in some ways is a second Adam. He's another tribe, but because of sin in the world, he fails to be a a replacement, if you will. He fails to be that that. Savior, if he w- you will. He fails to be that one that's going to do this right. Kurt Strassner writes of Noah being a sinner saved by grace. He said, Noah had found grace, free, unmerited kindness in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was righteous and blameless, yet, yes, but he wasn't naturally so. By nature, Noah was a born sinner. Just look at him, sprawled out drunk and naked in his living room, on his living room floor at the end of chapter 9. The curse of Adam had fallen as heavily on Noah as it had on anyone else. So the only reason why Noah was blameless in his time was because God had shown him favor. So, so that's the situation, that's, that, that's the experience that we see, this defining moment. And we pick back up in verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Now, he doesn't curse Ham. He curses Ham's youngest son, Canaan. We'll get to that. But it says, He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Jephthah. I always, for some reason, I always want to say that Jephthah. Japheth. And let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. And then we find after the flood in verse 28, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years. And he 
died. Recall that's how the, the, the line from Adam forward ended with all of them. And he died. The curse of sin was still ringing true throughout humanity because sin always brought death. And so we learn from the descendants of Noah first to look at the past. As I've said, the perspective here on these verses are looking at them from after the experience of the Tower of Babel in which diversity and different languages and different cultures are brought into the, onto the scene of the earth. All people groups were dispersed from these three sons. Ham is described as the father of Canaan, as we mentioned. The major focus here is Canaan and his relationship with God's people. God's people reading this for the first time are aware that the Canaanites are are dwelling in the promised land that they are to take and dispossess from the Canaanites living there. And so think about a family tree, right? Uh, Family tree can have different branches and things like that. We all have that. You know, we have the branch that's like that branch is full of nuts, right? I mean, you can have that in a family. You know, a normal tree, it's, if it's an almond tree, it's going to have nuts all over it. But a family tree can have one branch that's just nuts, right? You can have one branch that's just fruits, right? I mean, that's kind of how you can feel. They might feel the same way about you. One branch that's the frail weeping willow. The other branch that's the hard hickory, there's just not any penetrating that group of people, not getting into that family group at all in any way, right? You're all thinking about different relatives, different cousins and things like that right now. Understand that Genesis 9 through 11 explains the family tree of all of humanity, both our common root and how it is that we became so diverse as a humanity. Chapter 9 shows us that we have the common father of Noah, And it shows us that we share this experience of grace in the face of judgment in Noah and his family's experience with the flood. And chapters 10 and 11 show us our common root in humanity's diversity. Beginning with the different sons of Noah, we see the seeds of distinct cultures in chapter chapter 10. We see the root of God's grace toward the people who will bring the Savior. So we see different ancestries descending from different sons of Noah. Every person in, uh, in the world, and they can be a mix of these things, I'm sure, by this time. But, but, but from that point forward, everyone was a descendant of Ham or a descendant of Shem or a descendant of Japheth. Like, like those, those uh, I think I, um, I'd, I was looking at like the anatomy of a tree, and I think they're called uh, branch trunks. When a tree will break off into th- into two or three major uh, sections, and, and the rest of the crown comes from there. The, these three sons of Noah are the branch trunks. And chapter ten is known as the table of nations. The names there within chapter ten are the people groups that descend from these three sons. In chapter 10, verses 2 through 5, we learn of the descendants of Japheth. We learn that they are people groups that the Hebrew readers are familiar with. 
And you can see on a map here that has a general dispersion of these three, uh, these three sons and all of the diverse people groups that come from them. Okay, so Japheth, the sons of Japheth are described in chapter 10 as Gomer and Magog and Madai, and these represent large people groups. And in verse 5, it says, For these, from these, the coastal peoples spread in their lands, each, which, each with its own language, by their clans and their nations. And so we, we understand that, that the, sons, the, the descendants of Japheth, after the Tower of Babel, see how this is a prequel to what's going to happen in chapter 11, they spread through that coastal area of southern Europe along the coasts of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, we can learn from chapter 10, verse 6 and following that the people that can be traced to Ham are the sons of Arcush and Egypt and Put and Canaan. Uh, those, so these are the sons of Ham, but they also represent huge swaths of area in, in the, um, si- the Sinai area, the Arabian Peninsula, uh, Africa, and so on, and, 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 um, uh, and the Middle East. These are Middle Eastern and African regions that represent huge people groups that descended from the son Ham. And so we see that there are different ancestries, but the same source. Different ancestries, but the same source. Even in their diversity, even in their diverse ancestry, the father of those ancestors is the same, Noah. And Noah and his family were saved from judgment by God's grace. And in the heart of all mankind is the, is the idea that we are all connected with the same need for salvation from coming judgment. Today, we hear people that have no care about, about God or no care about what he has laid out in his word that, that talk out of both sides of their mouth. On one side, people want to say, you know, we're all God's children. We're all God's children. And we see that in many ways. This is true. We're created in his image. We've seen that here in the book of Genesis. But on the other hand, the, the statement wants to be made in a sense of, in an atmosphere of pluralism, where, where people want to argue the world is full of equally valid ideas about salvation. The world is full of equally valid ideas about God. It doesn't matter what name. They'll just differentiate those distinctions by, by name, maybe. The, the idea here is, uh, is uh, the, the, of a mountain, like with different paths down at the bottom. But all religions are just heading to the same summit. All religions are just heading to the same destination at the top. The truth is, is... is all religions and, and their destination are like a mountain, but it's like a mountain upside down. See, we all came from the same spot. We all came from the same people. We all came from the same family. We all came created by the same God who made us in his image with a purpose that we would exercise the dominion of his kingdom on this earth. And we all walked away from him. 
See, rather than all of the philosophies of the world heading to the same place, all of the religious philosophies of the world came from the same place and diverged from there. Just as we see going on in the, the common root of our diversity in chapters 9 through 11, of, of Genesis. We have a common source made in God's image, a common problem of sin, and a common solution in that very same God who had promised that one day the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, would crush the head of God's enemy, and he would do so by dying on the cross. Jesus himself, God himself, would die on the cross for our sins, for the separation that we cause between us and God. And in his resurrection from the dead, he purchased salvation. He purchased life, eternal life for everyone who would take him up on it and put their trust in him and believe on him. We have different ancestries, but the same source. And the goal of our life is to get back to that source of relationship with God, that source in which life is found. And Jesus told us, I am the way. I am the way back. I am the truth that will get you there. I am the life. We also learn from the descendants of Noah to look at the present. We read about... um, the, the actions of, Cain, of, of Ham, who was the father of Canaan, again, and, and how he treated, he investigated, he found it amusing, he gossiped over his father's compromised state. See, in ancient uh, Eastern culture, exposing a father's nakedness could destroy his respectability. It could destroy his credibility. The result could be devastating for his future influence in the family and in, in society. And we see Shem and Japheth redeem the situation. They don't participate in their brother's folly, devastating to Noah's honor. Instead, they're extremely cautious to protect their father's honor. It's described twice that they are both, they put a, clothing between their shoulders. It describes that they're walking backwards, and it also describes that as they're putting it down, they're facing backwards, away from their father's honor, away from their father's exposure. We see a starkly contrasted, a stark contrast in their behavior between these, and that is laying out the idea that, that the, the, for the Hebrew people in reading this, there is a reason. There is a cause to the effect of the way that people are as the Hebrew people are reading this, as, the pe- as people were in the day that they were living in. You see, uh, so we see this, that different behaviors exist. Ham brought shame to himself and to Noah with his response. Shem and Japheth brought honor to themselves and to their father by their response. We'll see in chapter 10, Ham's descendants affect the whole world's culture. 
their immoral government will lead to a new epoch in which mankind must be separated for his own good. It's Ham's descendants that bring about the Tower of Babel. Shem's descendants will be God's people and usher in the Messiah. Japheth's descendants will take the gospel to the ends of the earth in the modern missionary movement. Their reason is because of a standard that exists. The reason for their behavior in that moment is because of a standard that exists between right and wrong. You see, uh, even though there's different behaviors, but there's the same standard. There's the same standard. Ham being cursed for his behavior is a result of their not of, of of there being a right and wrong way to deal with the situation. And God's immoral standard of this relationship would be later, I'm sorry, God's moral standard of this relationship between father and child will be later written as a command, as we can see in the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land and that your, the Lord your God is giving to you. Well, as, you, as I mentioned, the Canaanites are in the land. They're living in the land. They, the Canaan, Canaan is the descendant of Ham that is cursed by Noah. They're living in the land. And, it, and the Jewish people, the Hebrews, are told as a part of God's commandments, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land. Guess whose days are numbered in the land? Canaan, the one who is cursed because of Ham, because his behavior was not a moral behavior according to God's standard. And this began with Ham's failing to meet God's moral standard of honoring his father. You know, um, I have one son that is still trying to get taller than me. It's not very hard to do, right? But uh, one thing that, that you know, I, we have to do to prove this at times is to get out the level, right? You get out the level, and you put it on one of your head, and you put it on the other kid's head, and, and you can tell by which direction the bubble's going to go to the taller person, right? So we did this you know, when Emmett was still shorter than me. And it was one of those moments of like, Dad, I think I'm taller than you. I think I'm taller than you. Okay, let's get the level out, you know. So we put the level on our heads, and you can see, okay, the bubble is going toward me. And so I was like, excellent. And um, uh, I don't remember what it was, uh, but somebody wanted to, like, prove it or, or that somebody took a picture as we were doing this. And as we're doing this, I, I'm, hold, you know, holding the level, and I'm pointing to it like, uh-huh, you know, I'm taller. And then it got posted on Facebook, all right? But Emmett was closer to the camera than I was. So I'm pointing at the level like, "Uh uh-huh, I'm taller, but Emmett looks taller, okay? And it's obvious in the picture, the level looks like it's rising to Emmett. And so people are, some of you might have remembered this, people are making comments, uh, JD, no, he's taller, sorry. So which do you go by there, okay? Do you go by the standard of the level, which is explaining it, or do you go by the perspective that comes from the camera? The perspective that says, well, no matter what that level says, 
It looks like this one's taller than this one, right? You see, today people will say morality depends on one's perspective, not on a standard. Not on a standard. We have the standard of God's commands. We have the standard of God's character. We have the standard of of perfection even that God has told us that we are to live by that we can't live by even. But the world that we live in wants to live by something called moral relativism or relative morality. And what that means is moral relativism is the idea that there's no universal or moral principles. It all depends on which perspective you're standing from, which angle you're looking at of which one is better than the other or which one, what should be done or what shouldn't be done. And this is not God's way. God's way is my way, right? Use the standard like the level. This this moral relativism advocates the idea of to each his own. Who am I to judge? Who am I to say what is right and what is wrong? Well, I'm not one to say what is right and what is wrong. And I have no authority to tell anybody what they should be doing. But when we speak to each other from the authority of God's truth, when we speak from God's authority, that is an authority that is over all of us and over both of us, like that level that's not going to lie. The fact is, is that even though the world is diverse in its behavior, God has a standard of righteousness. We experience different earthly consequences for our behavior, but mankind is all equally lost. We equally do not meet God's perfect standard of righteousness, and we are in need of a Savior. And what is most sad in all of this is that no idea of there being a perfect moral standard that God has means that there is no idea of the need of salvation from the penalty of our sins. And so the more that a moral relativistic idea or, or you know, all of it, you know, who's to say who's right or who's wrong, it just depends on your perspective. The more that that is promoted, the more that people do not have the idea that they need salvation. And that's what's most sad. But when we're looking at the present, we need to look at it through God's lens. Through God's lens. Yes, there's different behaviors, but there is the same standard in this world. Lastly, we can learn from the descendants of Noah to look at the future. We see that when Noah awoke, He learned what his youngest son had done. I I think he learned from his other sons because Canaan was, or Ham was blaming or blabbing about it. He says, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. This is is odd. Noah curses the youngest son of his youngest son. Okay. And there's not much to go on here in terms of culturally or grammatically why this goes about. My personal opinion here is Noah was wishing the same dishonor and heartache that he felt on Ham. Okay. So Noah felt pain and heartache about over his youngest son. And so he was wishing the same pain and heartache on his son Ham by cursing his youngest son. 
That, that's my best shot at it, of why Canaan is picked out here. We see why Canaan, uh, we see what goes on in Canaan's life from the rest of the Old Testament or the descendants of Canaan. But then he goes on to say, blessed be the Lord of the God of Shem. Shem is the first in Noah's blessings here. We, we get the term Semitic. We hear most often anti-Semitic, which means anti-Jewish. The term Semitic comes from Shem, Shemitic. The Jewish people are direct descendants of the son Shem. The Hebrews, the Jewish nation, are his descendants, as well as other uh, people groups as well from that time forward. But these are to be the people from whom the offspring of the woman will come. That's foretold to Eve. The Messiah would come through Shem. And I, and I think that's the greatest blessing on the Semitic people, on the Jewish people. And then we read, may the Lord enlarge Japheth. Japheth uh, representing Europe, representing the, the people groups that come from Japheth are the Europeans. And, and we see that in their enlarged, expansive impact of Europe on the world. And he's told, let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And this is possibly describing the fact that Europe, or as well as any people group, the, uh, as, as much as any people group, the Western world has benefited most from the gospel. It has transformed the, Europe and North America more than any other people group from that time forward historically has been transformed by the gospel, that can be an understanding of what it means to dwell in the tents of Shem. But we see here different futures depicted. In chapter 10, we'll see Ham's descendants would have a huge influence on the near future world. Uh, we can read in chapter 10, verses 8 through 12, that some of the line of Ham would have an, an earlier bad influence as well. We read uh, in verse 8 of chapter 10, Cush fathered Nimrod, Cush being a child of Ham, fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. That makes sense. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Eric, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh and lists off other uh, great cities that he built. Nimrod and his descendants would create, and they would be represented by Babel and the Tower of Babel. And they would also spread and create the nations of Assyria and the Babylonian empires as well. Those are the descendants of Ham. And the future legacy of Canaan would be obvious to the original reader as well. They could read in Leviticus 18.3, You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. Israel's struggle with the Canaanites is a common theme of the Old Testament. And even though the futures of these peoples were very diverse, their destinies were limited. Their destinies were limited. See, they have different futures, but the same immortality. Every person has an immortal soul that will consciously experience either eternal life or consciously experience 
eternal death. And even though God chose to make some of his privileged people, some of these descendants, his privileged people, your eternal destiny can still be reshaped in Christ. A descendant of Ham could repent and know God through the gospel and change their destiny to that of heaven. And a descendant of Shem could reject the gospel thinking he was special and be destined for hell. Think of Rahab, okay? She's living in Jericho. She's a prostitute. She's a descendant of Canaan. She, as well as her, the whole city of Jericho, is looking across the Jordan. They see the Hebrew people. And they're shaking in their boots. What does God do in Rahab's life? He brings her to salvation. He brings her to recognize that that the, the religious life and the lifestyle that she was living there in Jericho was wrong and it was, it was not working and that these people had the answer. These people were the ones that were bringing salvation. And so here a Canaanite becomes a part of the line of Christ as a part of the Hebrew people. You see, there are different futures predicted here but the same immortality that every person in these lines then is eligible to experience that immortality as immortal life or immortal death. And there's always been the opportunity for people to be saved from the curse of sin. As Paul preaches to the Athenians in Acts 17. Yeah, there were Athenians back then. He said, and he made known to one man every na- uh, from one man every nation from, of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods at the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. God set the boundaries of these nations but he gave the opportunity that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Makes me think of this family that did a genealogical study. Okay, and and so they they knew that they had this great, great uncle named Remus Starr. Unfortunately, they found out he was hanged for horse stealing and train robbery in Montana in 1889. And a cousin supplied them with the only known photograph of Remus. And it just happened to be showing him standing on the gallows, about to be hanged. On the back of the picture are these words, Remus Starr, horse thief, sent to Montana Territory Prison, 1885, escaped, 1887, robbed the Montana Flyer six times, caught by Pinkerton detectives, convicted and hanged in 1889. They think, what are we going to do? This is our oldest known relative. So they thought about it and they thought, okay, we're going to crop this picture. We're going to scan and enlarge it so you just see his head. And then they wrote this instead on the back of it. Remus Starr was a famous cowboy in the Montana Territory. His business empire grew to include acquisition of valuable equestrian assets and imitate dealings with the Montana Railroad. Beginning in 1885, he devoted several years of his life to service at a government facility. 
finally taking leave to resume his dealings with the railroad. In 1887, he was a key player in a vital investigation run by the renowned Pinkerton Detective Agency. In 1889, Uncle Remus passed away during an important civic function held in his honor when the platform upon which he was standing collapsed. (laughs) Even though we see so much of, of the world moving away from God's plan for them in these chapters, we see so much fateful determinism, it seems like. The fact is this, God still has a plan to redeem a people for himself from every tongue, from every tribe, from every nation to rewrite nations' stories. In Christ, we're told there is no Jew, there is no Gentile. We are all made one body in Christ. But as a part of that, we must first recognize our common moral responsibility that we fail to meet. We have a common root of a need for salvation and a need for a common Savior. And that one and only Savior is Jesus Christ. This has been Applying the Bible, part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Fellowship. We are a fellowship of followers of Christ who seek to make it about Him and His gospel mission in our daily lives. And if this message has been helpful for you, please feel free to subscribe and share Applying the Bible with a friend.